Thank you, Nancy. I invite you to turn with me to John, the fourth gospel, John chapter 11. Uh, we're going to be looking here this morning at verses uh, 17 through 27, and as you turn there, you might uh, remember uh, and be reminded as you look at uh, the pages of your Bible that this is uh, the chapter which Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And there is a confrontation here, a dialogue going on here between uh, the sisters of uh, Lazarus and uh, Jesus is reminding them that he is the resurrection and the life. John's gospel, as we uh, consider uh, this passage here is presented to us on several different levels. Uh, we see John talking about physical and very visible things. And as he's doing that, he's also referring to things in the spiritual realm. Uh, he might be referring to seeing, physically seeing, and yet seeing spiritual things, hearing and not hearing, hearing with our ears and not responding uh, spiritually. He talks about water, physical water and spiritual water. So when we get to this sixth I am statement, we hear him speaking about physical resurrection from the dead, but also a spiritual Resurrection to a newness of life when someone is uh, joined together with Christ by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and raised to a resurrection life today. Just as some people are right-handed, right-handed, left-handed, some people are right-brained and left-brained. Some people are uh, creative and intuitive, and others are uh, very systematic and analytic. Now, that's not to say that everybody uh, is divided into those absolute camps of, of thinking and emotion. Uh, sometimes uh, people blend the two quite well and are ambidextrous and dual-brained. But did you realize that there are folks that are right-eyed and left-eyed? John speaks here about having sight that brings into singular focus the general resurrection of the dead when Christ returns, but also the spiritual resurrection of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and resurrected from the deadness of life to newness of life now today. Now, bear with me just a minute. I want you to look at me. Okay? Now, as you look at me, I want you to extend your arm out in front of you and put your thumb up. Don't look at your thumb, but continue to look at me. You have to put it as a gun sight and look 
through your thumb at me. Now, shut your right eye. You have to look at me, Marion. With your thumb up in front of me. There you go. So your thumb is in between me and you and your eye. Now you have your right eye closed. Now, open your right eye and close your left eye. Does the image of me jump from one side to the other? If it didn't, didn't, then you see singular vision. If it did, then one side is your dominant eye and the other is not. So when you see different images, the idea is, especially when we go to an eye doctor and he puts that machine up in front of us, you can put your hand down now, he puts, he puts your, and by the way, I meant to tell you I'd love seeing those thumbs up. Uh, it's a great uh, pat on the back and affirmation for me, thank you. Um, you go to an eye doctor and he puts that machine up in front of you and he's going to, he sometimes will do a depth perception test, a visual perception test in which you see two images and he says, now tell me when you see them joined together as one, right? Because one of our eyes is dominant and one of them, uh, very uh, practically speaking, is not. And when we see with both eyes, what our eyes are doing is joining those two images together as one image. Well, in John chapter 11, we're confronted with two realities that sometimes get a little bit out of focus. Sometimes we concentrate on one at the expense of the other. We concentrate on the resurrection at the end of the time that is to come. And forget that that resurrection is part of our life and living now today. We tend to separate the two. And when we have a singular vision of the one who is the resurrection and the life, it affects how we see our lives and our living right now and today. Bringing the hope of tomorrow resurrection that is to come in the reality of today so that the two become one sight. Turn with me to John chapter 11 verse beginning at verse 17. So when Jesus came he found that he had already been in the tomb four days, that is Lazarus. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to the Lord, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Let me back up to 23 here. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. The grass withers, the flowers fade and fall, but the words of our Lord God endure forever. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us this morning ears to hear and eyes to see this singular vision of the words that Jesus presents to us here and now today, that he is the resurrection and the life, that these are not two separate and distinct things, they are one. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, sent word to Jesus that Lazarus was sick. Evidently, this was an illness that was pretty serious because they sent for the great healer. The sisters believed that when Jesus heard their plea and their prayer, heard this news of their brother's illness, that Jesus would have immediately come to their aid and healed Lazarus. They were issuing a cry for help. They were issuing a cry for deliverance from death. When a loved one is sick, what do we do? We send out Cries for help, prayers of intercession and deliverance. And we send out that news in hope that someone is going to attend to our need. Well, the natural reaction when we hear that relatives or, or even dear friends are sick is to rush to their side, send out prayers, lift up prayers for them to see what can be done for them. Well, we would have expected that Jesus would come immediately to the aid of his dear friends, to Mary and Martha, to Lazarus. But Jesus does just the opposite, if you're familiar with the story here. He intentionally waits, putting off his arrival until after the death of Lazarus. One of the most amazing verses in the Bible is verse 6, if you have your Bibles open there before you, which says that when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he spent two days longer in in the place that he was, where he was. He deliberately waits two more days before he comes and answers their prayer. And when he arrives there, we know the result of his coming. His delay in answering their request did not mean a denial of their request. It was simply a delay. Jesus arrives late, but he's still on time. Isn't that true of all God's providences in our lives? I mean, things may happen to us that we think are untimely, and yet it's in God's perfect time. God always has our best interest at hearts, believe it, 
And he acts according to his own agenda and timetable, not ours. Jesus has a purpose in waiting. Waiting to come to Bethany where Mary and Martha are waiting for him. We're told in verse 4 of chapter 11 why he delays. We don't often get to know why God delays in answering our prayers, do we? And yet here we see the reason that he delayed. Look at John 11 and verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Both Mary and Martha say these words to Jesus. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary later in the account here, comes up to Jesus and when she sees him, falls at his feet and says to him the same words that uh, Martha has said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Isn't there something in all of us, like Mary and Martha, that wants to tell God how our lives should be, what He should have done, how we should have Mary and Martha look for Jesus to heal their brother. And God does all things, doesn't He, according to His will and His eternal purpose. And in most cases, we don't know those specific purposes other than it is. Our lives are to be lived out, glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. But in this setting, we do get to see why Jesus delays His arrival, His coming. And most of the time in our lives, when there is a a delay, we don't know the reason for that delay. We do get impatient, don't we? And wonder why God just doesn't do something and do it now. Or when he does something, we're wondering why he didn't do it differently. God uses his divine decree. We might even say his prerogatives as to the time and seasons of our lives. God is never late. He's always right on time, moving in wondrous and mysterious ways his works to perform. Maybe the hardest thing we have to do is wait on God to be still and to know that He is God and we are His creatures, the sheep of His pasture, and understand that His delays are not necessarily denials of our needs. Jesus responds here with an outward display of emotion. But it does not mean that he is inwardly despairing of the situation that he's confronted with. The shortest verse in all of our Bibles 
You know it. Jesus wept. Is probably not only the shortest, but I would say is, is probably one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because it shows us the depth of Jesus' feeling for his people, for creation. And it shows us at the same time his connection with humanity, with us. That word that is used here, Jesus wept, indicates that Jesus shed tears. He cried. Not because of physical suffering. Not out of a sense of despair. But because he was, uh, it says in verse 33, it uses a similar phrase, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Uh, The words here in the Greek indicates that there was an emotional feeling down in his in the very bowels of his being the very heart of his soul jesus experienced real sorrow from the depth of his soul this says to me that jesus knows each one of us, who we were reminded last week, are sheep of his pasture. He understands what each one of us is going through. He understands and connects with us in a way that maybe no one else really can. He doesn't stand off to the side, detached from our humanity and our experiences and is separated from our emotions and feelings. He sympathizes with us. He empathizes with us. He understands and cares deeply for you. The writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Jesus knows about all our troubles because He experienced them. I don't quite know how to explain that to you. And I don't know that any theologian really can or could. But Jesus has experienced as our great high priest all things that we experience, even every temptation, yet without sin. He not only came to save us from our sins, He experienced the pain of separation from God, the Father, because of our sin. He suffered as we suffer. He was bruised as we so easily can be bruised. He was hurt as we are hurt. He was weary as we become weary. He was forsaken as sometimes we feel forsaken. He was ridiculed as we often are ridiculed. He wept as we weep. Seminary training 
Sometimes, uh, at least when I was there, uh, some of the, the teaching and pastoral theology may have changed a little bit, but in my training there, as we went through a pastoral theology class, uh, we were cautioned about getting too emotionally involved with those that we pastor. Now, it doesn't mean we don't get involved, but like a, a surgeon operating on a patient on an operating table has to remain uh, objective about that patient in order to properly do the work that he's called to do. So uh, they said, you as a pastor need to remain objective. Don't let your experiences overwhelm you to the point where you can't come alongside someone in their sorrow and grief and brokenness and point them to the cross. A pastor comes alongside one who is grieving for a loved one that has died or is terminally ill, must in a sense remain objective. Even as we do funerals. And we have, I have grown close to many of the congregation that have since fallen asleep. I had to remain strong in the presence of their family members in order to be a, a, a support for them. And yet pastors are people too. We do get involved as Jesus was involved. We do weep with you. Maybe not in your presence, but believe me, there is weeping and sorrow. Pastors are shepherds, under-shepherds of those that God has placed under their care. But outward displays of emotion, of weeping and wailing, does not mean that there is inward despair. Paul says we weep and grieve, but not as those who have no hope. For we do not want you, he says, to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are, notice the, the euphemism he uses for dead, for those who have passed on before you, for those who have died. He says, for those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Jesus' display of emotion was not out of a sense of inward despair, of giving all up as lost. His display of grief was not the despair of grief, but of one who as a man of sorrows was acquainted with grief. Isaiah says he was despised and forsaken by men. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. See, when God created man and woman, he created us to live eternally. We've grown so accustomed to death and dying 
But death was not part of that natural way that Adam and Eve were potentially going to live for all eternity. Adam sinned, and his sin brought pain and misery, even death, separation, physical and spiritual from God. Death, no matter how we tried to deny it or how we tried to soften it or use words to mask its seriousness, is still something that is going to happen to every one of us sitting here in this room unless Christ returns first and gathers all of His people to Him. Even some Christians, assured of their salvation, whether they will admit it or not, may have a little apprehension about death itself. Well, not about death, maybe, so much as about how that death is going to occur. Even as you listen to people talk, about that event in our lives. Well, I don't want to die by, you fill in the blank, fire, drowning. See, there's a little apprehension there. Lord, uh, you know, I know I have to die unless you return first and gather me to my eternal home. And if I have to experience that physical death, then please don't let it be. However, you fear. There may be dread of how it will happen, but dread does not mean defeat. The dread of death does not mean that we are defeated in death or by death. See, the lesson in Lazarus' story here is that death does not have the final word. Jesus does. There's a a sign on one of the churches down Sywell Road that in effect says, no matter what's going on today, Jesus wins. Isn't that the way... Revelation portrays all that to us in the midst of all the, the visions and the, uh, the horrific images that are there in Revelation. We know that Jesus has conquered both His and our enemy. Then, today, tomorrow, and forever. When Martha tells Jesus that if He had been there, her brother would not have died, Jesus says this, Your brother will rise again. And she replies, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. You see, she's seeing two different images. She's still seeing, even with Jesus standing there before her, who is the resurrection and the life, she is seeing a resurrection on the last day that doesn't have anything much to do with life now here today. Jesus says to her, I am. Now remember that I am is one of those statements. Ego e me. Everybody knew that God, uh, Jesus was saying, I am God. I am the one who spoke 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to Moses out of the burning bush. I am is my name. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you hear the importance of what Jesus is saying there? The dead shall live and the living shall never die. Jesus is saying here that there is no life outside of Him. That death has been defeated. The defeat of death only comes through the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And only those who believe in Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life that we're going to get to next week, will live tomorrow and can fully live today in light of the resurrection tomorrow. The dread of death does not mean defeat in death. But this is only true by those who are believers in Jesus Christ. Who are trusting in Him and Him alone. For those who believe in Him by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. After Jesus made this I am the resurrection statement I am the resurrection and the life. He asked Martha a question. Do you believe this? She answers in a way that indicates that as she looked at life and death, they were two separate events. I don't know if she was right-eyed or left-eyed, but one of them was dominant. She says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, and that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, come into the world. She believes that there is a resurrection from the dead, but did she believe that the one standing before her was the resurrection and the life today? Who Jesus is and what He has come to do are brought into singular focus with one image, not double vision, but a singular vision and focus. For he says, he is the resurrection and the life, and it proceeds to demonstrate this at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus arrives at the tomb. As you read that account here, you are confronted with a cave and a stone over the opening, Maybe a foreshadowing of an event in Jesus' life that was to come. Not too far in the distant future, in the context here. Jesus says, now take away the stone. And when Jesus tells the folks there to take away the stone in front of the tomb, Martha protests. She says, but Lord, already there's a smell, there's a stench, because he's been dead for four days. See, the Jews believed that the soul after death lingered near the body for three days and that death was only truly final on the fourth day. And Jesus tells Martha, Did I say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? 
So what did they do? They removed the stone. And Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. Father, he says, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. See, the Father had already heard the prayer of the Son. And Jesus said, Father, I know you've heard me, but for the sake of these uh, folks standing around here, I want you to answer so that these folks will see that I have come from you and you have sent me and I am doing your will in order to bring glory to you. Then what does Jesus do? He cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! The call was for Lazarus by name, specifically. Lazarus' resurrection, as far as we know, according to the natural laws of humanity, his resurrection was only temporary. He was going to die again. But Jesus' resurrection is permanent. In a sense, Lazarus' resurrection is a preview, a dress rehearsal, if you will, of our own resurrections from the dead and resurrection to life even now. And when Jesus returns and calls, there's going to be a, 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 a call as he returns. The Lord Himself will descend. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, With the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. He will call, but as He called Lazarus by name, don't ask me how He's going to do this, but I believe He's going to call each one of us by name. Rise from the dead. Even he is, as He is called, each one who is a believer in Him, specifically and by name. See, our resurrection will be different than what Lazarus's was, because Lazarus was raised to immortal life, which would end again one day, but we shall be raised at the end of time to a resurrected life which shall endure forever. Paul reminds us that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. Death's finality is destroyed by the victory of Christ over death. And when... The dead in Christ shall rise. We can ask that rhetorical question. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? For the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable. See, he's speaking now to the resurrection then, but what that means for now. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The question we are left with is the question that Jesus presented. Do you believe this? When you raise your hand and give me a thumbs up, and you look toward the cross of Christ, do you see two things? Looking with one eye or the other. Do you see the resurrection from the dead, the general resurrection at the end of time? Or do you see the life now? See, Jesus has come to bring those two into clear focus. When we raise our hands and give that thumbs up to the cross of Christ, what do you see? Do you see two things? The resurrection from the dead and life today? Jesus has come to bring those two things together for us. So we see them as one. When we close the right eye or the left eye, we see one thing. The glory of God in the face of Christ. For some Christians, these two things are two separate things. Life today and resurrection tomorrow. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. You can't separate the two. You see me the way I am now. You see me. The promise of the resurrection tomorrow is the hope of life today. Today. And you know, there are situations in all of our lives it seems especially since March this year where we need this reality to come into clear focus for us. Because we can experience death in so many ways. Our hopes can die. Our joys can die. Our loves can die. Our peace can even die. We can be overcome by a sense of defeat and despair which so easily can be as deadly as death itself. Jesus calls us to come out of the, those situations as Lazarus came out of the tomb with those uh, burial clothes still on him and, and he was unwrapped. So we need to, by the power of God's Spirit, unwrap ourselves from those strappings of deadness and live the resurrection of life. Maybe today you may even be despondent and weighed down about all the things we haven't been able to do since March because of COVID-19 on all the restrictions. Maybe the joy of your salvation has been killed through some tragic event in your life. Maybe your peace has been disturbed by some turbulent personal conflict or your love for family members 
and friends has been fractured and mortally wounded by some incident in the past or maybe even today. What Jesus says, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You may believe there is a resurrection from the dead, but are you living that resurrection life now? The one who is the resurrection and the life calls us to live that resurrection life now. And in that life, there is joy. There is peace. There is rest. And there is hope through the one who is our peace and rest. Our life and our hope. Our resurrection our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Heavenly Father, oh, how we long to live this life. We don't have to wait until we die to be comforted with these words and to live with you for all eternity. We can do that even now today, professing faith and the one who is our Lord and Savior. And know that that faith is a gift of you, our God. Father, comfort us where we need to be comforted. Give us clear vision of the resurrection the resurrection life now. May our sights be set on the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, sat down at the right hand of you, our God and Father, so that we, sheep of his pasture, might not grow weary in well-doing. We pray in Christ's name.